Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Oriane Gamelin, co-founder and COO of Oncozome, where she's focused on advancing cancer research to overcome its resistance. Welcome to the Deep Tech Podcast. I'm here today with my guest, Oriane from Oncozone. They are hacking part of the cellular communication systems to target cancer cells, which is a really interesting problem to tackle and probably going to help a lot of people. So welcome, Orian. Tell me a little bit more about your guys. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, so basically the team is really, um, it started with my father and myself, but mainly with my father. He has over 30 years of oncology experience. So he started as an oncologist. So he had, you know, he was treating patients. He probably treated thousands of patients. But his um, main problem when he was treating his patients was that they would come, they would have tumors, they would undergo a treatment, let's say chemotherapy, and you could see the tumor shrinking. But then, you know, a couple months after, and it, it could be very quick, a couple months after the two distant tumors, for example, would relapse and would go back at the same time simultaneously. So for him, you know, he, he asked himself, how is that possible? How can two distant tumors start regrowing at the same time? And then he realized that this is part of cancer resistance. We all know right now that the biggest problem that we're facing in oncology is that cancer is resistance to current treatments. And how is cancer resistance through its communication system? And that explains why two different tumors communicate with each other and grow at the same time. So he really analyzed cancer cell communication and he realized that, you know, cancer cells send each other uh, tiny little vesicles that we call exosomes. And in these exosomes, let's call them pockets. In these pockets or envelopes, if that makes more sense, since we're talking about communication, there are different messages. The different messages can be oncogenes, proteins, mRNA, different types of mechanisms of resistance that cancer cells can send to each other. And when they receive aggression from a cancer treatment, they release tons and tons of exosomes to their sister cells to be able to uh, resist, hide, support each other, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, cancer is really not just a, um, a mass of malignant cells. It's really a, an ecosystem in which cell communication is highly present. And so, you know, through these uh, studies that he had, he also had a, a research lab, a cancer research lab, and he started focusing on cancer resistance. And that led him to realize, okay, so the best way to try and conquer, let's say, cancer is to hack those exosomes, to, in non-scientific words, to grab these pockets with all these messages, empty them, and load them with our messages. And our message is we decided to start with gene therapy, aka CRISPR, specifically CRISPR-Cas9. So we load the exosomes with CRISPR-Cas9, and then we inject these exosomes back so that they perform what they need to perform, basically. Just one question before we move forward. So if, let's say, we do a traditional treatment and that treatment kills almost all of the cancer cells, but some of them are resistant somehow, 
then they would be able to send that resistant or messages of that resistant to the other ones. And then they all going to become resistant at some point. Exactly. Then we're going to be harder and harder and harder to, to actually, unless you kill all of them at the same time, it's practically impossible. Some of them would be probably resistant. And then at some point they would, you actually are, are selecting the, the resistant ones by actually doing the treatment. And then at some point we'll not be able to go forward with it anymore, right? Yeah, because when you think about it, if you do chemotherapy on cancer cells, like you said, let's say the majority of the cancer cells die, but then you will have those resistant ones. And now these are resistant to chemotherapy. So either you're going to use more chemotherapy and you know, using more of such toxic treatment is also bad for the patient. You have to realize that the patient is undergoing really highly toxic effects from these treatments. And some of these treatments actually induce death themselves. So, um, you know, once, once the cancer becomes resistant, it becomes very difficult and pretty much hopeless to cure. And another question, like how specific it is like this communication system? Like, and just one thing, like when we talk about communications, we are talking about transferring some characteristics as well, right? When, when they communicate, they actually transfer the resistance as well. It's not just a message. There's a transferring of the, the capabilities as well. How specific it is like when one of those cancer cells are communicating, one of those tumors that you talked about are communicating with each other, it's just between the cancer cells and this is, goes through the normal cells as well, or is it just like a specific channel of communication? Great question. Both. So cancer cells communicate between cancer cells for sure. They have cancer exosomes go to cancer exosomes. So for example, let's say a pancreatic cancer cells release pancreatic cancer exosomes, and they have molecules on top of their surface. Uh, so for example, tetraspinin or other, other types of molecules. And so they kind of bind to the molecules that they're connected with. So pancreatic cancer exosomes go to pancreatic cancer cells, but it has been proven that also cancer cells can communicate with the environment around them. So they can communicate with immune cells to manipulate the immune cells to not attack them. So this part of the, the cell communication, I know a little bit less, but cancer cells can actually communicate also with other types of cells, not just cancer cells. Oh, I see. I see. So they can as well, like, okay, they would be able not only to transfer like the, the resistance to using this communication, but also to not attack, but interfere with the own like body resistance to to the cancer itself. Yeah. So let's say in, in, in non-scientific words, that the, these cancer cells can also send exosomes to immune cells with messages. And, you know, people can laugh about it, but, but it's just, it, it really does happen with messages. That, let's say, uh, uh, don't, don't eat me, don't attack me <laughs> to the macrophages who usually would yeah. attack, you know, yeah. uh, um, enemies of the bodies, but it does happen. It has been published. It has been shown. But we really focus on the communication between cancer cells, not at all actually on the communication with immune cells. Because what, what I think about when, like, when you tell me that you guys are using this communication pathway for, or these envelopes, these exosomes and changing their insights, you put like uh, treatments on them. What I think about is that would them go only to the cancer cells or could they stray away and actually target other cells 
making it like damage to other cells that were not the, the original target, like not cancer cells. I see what you mean. That's a great question as well. So actually, when we are going to perform our studies, let's say in our batch, we will only work with cancer cells. So we won't have any other immune cells in there. So let's say you have a batch, you have your cancer cells in there. You put a cytotoxic drug to excite them, to scare them. Not too much of it because you don't want to kill the cancer cells. You want them to communicate. You know, you want yeah. them to, to be scared and to release everything. So, so because we only have cancer cells in there, they already know that they're surrounded only by cancer cells. So all the exosomes that they will produce, that they will release, are cancer exosomes meant to go to other cancer cells oh, and not other cells. So this is the first filter that we have so that, and obviously there are other filters down the road, but to try and be very specific and target only the cancer cells. Yeah, I think that this is a great point for for this type of treatment because more traditional one of the biggest problems we have in more traditional cancer treatments is that they are not specific at all like exactly. what they what the problem with that's so painful for the patients and everybody involved is that you kill a lot of other things with the cancer like you are killing the patient as well a little bit with the sometimes a lot with the with the cancer cells because of the like the chemo or the radiation it's not like a target thing, like they would affect everything. So the fact that you guys can have like a more targeted approach would mean like the patient will recover faster and they would be less adversarial effects. So this is really interesting how precise I think. I think the term is precise, more precise than the traditional blunt uh, ways of doing it. There's also a phenomenon, it's called the exosome homing. And that has been published too. They were, uh, so for example, there was a, a specific publication. They had, a, a, was it ovarian cancer? So they had mice models with ovarian cancer and they used exosomes from renal cancer that they injected in the mice models. And they wanted to see where the exosomes went. And the exosomes went kind of everywhere and, and anywhere because these mice did not have renal cancer. They had ovarian cancer. Now, they did the same experience with exosomes with ovarian cancer. And these exosomes, when you know they uh, dissected the, the mice to see where the exosomes were, they really had targeted the ovarian cancer. They were concentrated in the ovarian cancer. So there's definitely an exosome homing, meaning that you know exosomes coming from a certain cancer cell line will target that same cancer cell line. And, and then, as far as I understand, you could do that with the own patient cancer cells, right? You could like yeah. take them from out of the patient, excite those cells. They would create this little magic communication bubbles. And then you guys would clean them from the inside and then put other things that would kill the, the cancer inside them. So this would mean that your treatment would have less chance of some immune problem or some immune backlash from the system because you are working off their own patient things. Like it's not like other people or are generic exosomes from the, their own, that specific patient that you guys are working on, right? Yeah. So this is a very good point. We can definitely work directly with the patient's cancer cell line, but at some point, because we're going to get into, into clinical trials and because of the, specifically because we're targeting KRAS, there's a lot of patients and so we will have the cancer cell lines pre-ready, let's say, so okay. that we don't waste too much time 
really going from patient to patient, but really have it already ready. So for example, if let's say again, pancreatic cancer patients come in, we don't have to grab the exosomes from each of the cancer patients. So have it ready. Mm -hmm. And then they, they would be able to recognize that line of cancer cells anyway, depending on the patient. Yes, because of the molecules that are on oh. of the exosomes, you can do but that. But it would be like the recognition would be the same, independent of, if, even if the patients are different, the recognition system is the same across. Yes. Okay. Okay. Again, we're not in clinical yet, so I can't. I can't tell you that this is <laughs> sure, and I and I won't. I won't take that step because you never know. You you, yeah. you never. Know. But there is there is definitely an exosome homing, and 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 what what we could see in in these mice models, especially for the, the ovarian cancer, it did not come from that same specific cell line. The exosomes came from ovarian cancer, and they Obviously. still recognize the ovarian cancer in in these mice. Yeah, this, this is important because what, what I was the trade-off that I was thinking about asking you about was like, if it was a specific for each patient would mean more specific, but at the same time would increase the costs of production a lot because you need to do basically redo everything for each patient. And of course, every time you do that, we would reduce your scale, would mean that would be like a, maybe a really expensive treatment and and it would be really hard to make it cheaper because if it would be like more like handcraft. So by doing that, you guys would be able to, to reduce costs significantly in producing it. Talking about cost, like in when you think about gene therapies, there's a lot of delivery mechanisms, like one of the most common is like using virus, which is really expensive. I think that most of the most expensive drugs right now, approved drugs are gene therapies right now. We have like million dollar drugs that are actually gene therapies. How related to costs are you guys thinking about a treatment like this would be compared to other gene therapy deliveries? Do you have any idea? That's a great question because we based our treatment costs comparing with our competition. But a competition isn't using necessarily gene therapy. They're going after KRAS but they're not using gene therapy. And I know their, their treatment is about, uh, I think like $18,000. Yeah, so, so I, we would have to, you know, I'm not quite sure. So I'm not going to make a mistake here. <laughs> but but it's, it's a great question because we, we did base our prices on our competition, but I think that we will need to reassess obviously because by the time also that we get to commercialization, you know, this is going to take probably eight to 10 years at least. So prices will have changed. Maybe gene therapy will be more accessible as well. You know, CRISPR already is facing some competition. There, there are other types of CRISPRs out there now. So I think that that market and those prices will really be changing in, in the, the next decade. So if I give you a price range right now, it'll probably be different. Yeah, because when, when I think about it from first principles, I think that, you guys would be able to be cheaper in the sense that the act of taking a virus, making it not dangerous, and then using it in gene therapy in itself, just the process of creating the virus, reproducing the virus and making it not dangerous seems to be there's more steps involved and more security and it's more dangerous when I think about that compared to what you guys are doing, which is using the 
the communication that's already there and it's already made for transferring things from cell to cell. And so it's, it looks to me that the whole process could be cheaper in the long term. This is a production thing, but it's just like, it's just an idea. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> We, we would hope so too, because I mean, you know, in, in the US, these treatments are ridiculously expensive. It's actually pretty terrible. But the only thing that would also make our treatment expensive, it, and again, it depends on the on the on how the the market evolves for for CRISPR. But we would need to, to license it, right? Because CRISPR is not our invention. So this is something that we would have to license. What we're hoping is that the competition with CRISPR will really increase, so that the license prices. Oh, but you never know. Right now, it's very yeah. There's there was just like a recent news about that patent battle on CRISPR. I, I don't know if you if I've seen that. I think that yeah. it, it went to the Zhang and the the Broad Lab now. I think I think they won the the patent battle, or at least this oh, this just, uh, this battle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a nonsense battle between Berkeley and, and the Yeah, I think that Berkeley just lost it to, to, to the Broads, I think, this week, as far as I know. But they probably they are already fighting that decision as well. So it's like a it's like a big, big battle between those. But I think that yeah, I think that there's a lot of like CRISPR was just the beginning, I think that probably would not be like five to ten years from now the exact thing that we'll be using. It's just like the base where we're going to improve upon. It's really hard. Would be almost when I was back in college, I would thought that would be, I still think it would be impossible for us to actually create CRISPR from zero or I think similar like that, that just like engineering in a lab with our lab of technology right now. We humans are not good at that at this point. But once we have a base, like a functional system like CRISPR, we can surely do artificial improved versions of it, of better and better versions and improvement. This definitely, it's, it's in our reach. So I think CRISPR is just the beginning. It's just a jump, like getting like, and then, you know, improving upon it. It's an amazing tool for sure. And regarding like gene therapies, do you guys think that you use this system to do other types of cancer or even other types of, of gene therapies? What's the future for you guys? Supposedly that everything that you dream about comes true. Like 10 years from now, like what changed in the world? What's what's different 10 years from now? If everything you guys want to do goes according to the plan or even better than the plan, let's say better than the plan. <laughs> yeah, we, there's so many things that we want to do. There, there's so many things that we're dreaming of doing, but right now we're stuck in our fundraising process. My father really wants to have a, a clinic of cell communication and really dive deep into cell communication because our body is communication. Our body is made up of, of so many cells. Everything is communicating. We don't hear it. We don't feel it, but everything is communicating. So he really wants to dive deep into cell communication, not just in cancer, but also in, in uh, neurological diseases, diabetes, so many other, other things. So the, the gene therapy for us is really just, to be honest, is just one message that we are using at first because it's easy and, and we think that it's the most efficient way to demonstrate our approach. But really, I mean, there's so many other things that we can work with. mRNA, there's so many other things that we can load into exosomes for different types of indications or diseases. Our main platform is really the exosomes, the delivery approach. 
because it is targeted. It is very specific. If we can nail down the isolation of the exosomes, empty them fully or, or you know, um, to a great extent and load them without hurting the exosome, without changing the size and all of these little details, yeah. then with exosomes, I would say you can do, you can do so many things. You can load them with, with uh, so many things. So gene therapy is just a, a little parenthesis, let's say, yeah. in our overall approach. And right now we're starting with cancer because that's Eric's expertise, but we, we definitely want to open up work with other companies that are working on other diseases. We're actually going to talk to another company right now who could help us manufacture the, the exosomes. And they're working on, on other types of diseases and would like to use this platform for the diseases that they, they focus on. So we think that it's really um, the doors opening to something completely new, but that is very promising. So yeah, gene therapy, to come back to your question, it's, it's just a parenthesis. It's just one low-hanging fruit of using the exosomes for delivery therapies too. Regarding the delivery or more physical approach, how it would work? Like, would it be like injection? It would be like how, how that would work? Yeah, IV. IV, most definitely. So basically, when you inject the, 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 uh, the exosomes, we'll have to demonstrate this. But let's say that they do what, what, what we think they will do. They'll target. So again, I'll take the pancreatic. They'll, they target the pancreatic cancer cells. They enter the, the cells and from there, there, they release their content. So if we have CRISPR-Cas9 in the exosomes, CRISPR goes directly into the nucleus of the cell and it cuts the mutated gene. So KOS in a, as our first step, right? So it finds the mutated gene, it cuts it. And the, the beautiful thing about this is that cancer cells, they are addicted to driving oncogene, driving oncogenes, like the main oncogenes, not the ones that are that are not considered driving oncogenes. So they they depend their survival, the cancer cell survival depend on the driving oncogene to you know continue producing more messages, etc., and uh, expanding. So if you use CRISPR-Cas9, it goes directly into the nucleus of the cell. It cuts the mutated oncogene. And the cells can no longer survive if it doesn't have that driving oncogene. So it dies. And the other really great part about this approach is that we're not trying to correct the cell, the, the genes of the cell. We're not trying to correct anything. So, you know, because of a lot of questions as to, well, if you're trying to correct the, the gene, if you're, if you're trying to do something else and you're, you're not sure it's going to work. So we just do the first step. We cut the driving oncogene the mutated genes, and then the cell automatically dies because it really it needs them. Needs that it needs it. Yeah. So it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty efficacious. And it's, it's also the last part, sorry, that I want to add is that it's a, it's a quick death, right? Because we abruptly cut. And so we think that by abruptly cutting like this and abruptly inducing cancer cell death, the cancer cell doesn't have time to adapt. It doesn't have time to send messages to its sister cell saying like, hey, this is what's going on. Or, you know, so the cancer resistance, we hope, should not be a problem with our approach. But because it's cancer, because it's smart, and because you never know, we have a plan B to make sure that there is no resistance, for sure. This would mean the same way that we were talking earlier about the precision of the exosomes communicating with only the cancer cells, this would mean more precision as well, right? Because not all the other cells would have uh, these oncogenes. 
it would be mm-hmm. more specific for the cancer cell. So even if the for some reason a small percentage of the, the oncogenes would go to the wrong cells, it would not be that bad in the end because the the oncogene would not be there and it's not gonna affect that much that cell or most of it. That's a great point that you're making, and I love that, that you just pointed this out. Yes, CRISPR-Cas9, let's say if the, the exosome goes to the wrong cell, regardless, CRISPR-Cas9 really detects mutated genes. And to guide CRISPR-Cas9 to the right mutated gene, to a, a KRAS mutated gene, you have to have guide RNAs to guide the CRISPR-Cas9 to find this mutated gene and cut it. So if the exosome releases CRISPR-Cas9 in a cell, that doesn't have that mutated gene, CRISPR is not going to do anything because it's not going to be guided anywhere. It's not there. Yeah. yeah. So the side effects, again, we haven't done it in clinical trials, so I can't can't advance too much, but the side effects should be very low. Yeah. I'm really stressing this point about side effects because, uh, of course, we all want to have cures and new treatments for, for cancer, but having them with less dramatic and painful side effects is a really good thing at all. Like if, because it's the state of like, it's sad not only for the patient, but for the family as well, to see someone going through all that pain and all that suffering and months and months and seeing your loved ones, like the sheer pain of the treatment actually. So having like precision like this, this level of technological precision could be a way of us to, alleviate at least this the more scary part i think a lot of people are the scary part of the cancer besides the the, the own mortality in the cancer it's the whole treatment process and the whole even if you survive you survive with a lot of lot of pain so having this this type of precision would definitely guide us towards a more like quality of life for the patients which which is great for everybody everybody involved so you're, you're bringing a great point, and I think that that's the problem also in biotech these days, in, in therapeutic. I mean, you know, they develop these drugs and they're working towards doing better things. But where I would criticize is the fact that it doesn't seem like these companies really think of the patient and what the patient is, is undergoing when they when they do take their drugs. You know, Eric, so my, my father, Eric, having worked for 20 years as a medical oncologist, he was very impacted by his patients because when you're hit with cancer, you can be a bad person, but it will change your life. Your entire mentality will change. You will become strong. You will become hopeful. You will fight for your life. You will fight for your loved ones. And he's seen, Eric has seen such greatness in these patients to the point that it really impacted him. And, and, and he really wants to, you know, a big part of his approach is to respect the patient, to avoid side effects, to avoid toxicity, and also to use as little treatment as possible because the more treatment you use, the more risk of side effects. So if you use as low of a treatment as possible, then you limit those side effects even more. So all of this approach is also geared towards the patient and the the patient living a, a comfortable life undergoing this type of treatment. Yeah, yeah, I think that this one of the most exciting things about these new biotech solutions that we are creating is we're getting more and more precise on what we are doing, and like like using like a more precise tools would lead to less blunt 
results. And one, one other question I have about what you guys are doing is that you started doing like a proof of concept and start testing these concepts, right? What in what stage you you guys are in prototyping and and trying to do like uh, test of uh, concept of of this platform? So we're still very early. Our proof of concept is in vitro, and uh, we are actually fundraising right now to get in vivo in vivo data because that that, that will be a pivotal turn for for us. So right now in vitro we have managed to show the, to show the efficacy of CRISPR-Cas9 inducing cancer cell death, and I believe we we've tested it in lung one one lung cell line and one colorectal cell uh, cell line. Our first three indications of focus are KRAS advanced, KRAS mutated lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. So we've tested CRISPR-Cas9 the the, uh, the effectiveness of CRISPR-Cas9 inducing cancer cell death for this lung cancer cell line and colorectal cancer cell line. And it was, it, it worked tremendously well. This is a first part, but at the next part that we really want to get to is show the exosome homing. So there are publications out there, like I was describing to you with the ovarian cancer and the, the renal cancer uh, exosomes. So there are publications already showing that, for example, pancreatic cancer exosomes go to pancreatic cancer cells. But we need to prove it ourselves. We need to have our own data to show, you know, investors and, and other other um, experts in the field that we there is an exosome homing, and that not only CRISPR is efficient in vitro, we at least we have that part, but also the delivery works and the exosomes do target the right cells. So this is our our, our next step. Okay, and regarding like fundraising, fundraising for the tech. Startups tend to be like ten x harder than for traditional startups. So, tell me a little bit about, more about it. What what stage you guys are in in the fundraising process, and what are, do you think it's the, like the biggest challenge, both for like more in general and for you guys specifically? Great questions. So, we've been fundraising since January of 2021. So, it's been a little bit over a year, and. I think that in general, the hardest part, and this is exactly where we're at, is the chicken and the egg, right? That's how they call it here. It's basically, investors are going to tell you, look, your approach is interesting, it's promising, but we need to see more data so that it's, your company is a little bit de-risked. However, in order to get data, we need money. Yeah. <laughs> so the investors are saying like, yeah, get more data, but we're telling them, well, we need the money to get data. How are we supposed to do this? So they're telling us, you know, go through grants and and non-dilutive funding. And but, but, well, I mean, what do you think? You know, I, every, every time they ask me, like, well, how do you apply to grants? Of course, we've applied to grants. Like, what do you think? But <laughs> it's, it's not it's not that easy. Uh, especially in oncology, is extremely competitive. When we, I think we've applied for, let's say, probably six grants. We're still waiting on 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 three three results. But so far, the, the three grants that we've had results for, the reviewers highly disliked exosomes. For some reason, you know, they did not like exosomes. And so we didn't get the grants. So it, it's very difficult because we do have a very innovative approach. It's scary yeah. because there's still not a lot of data on there. Yeah. So de-risking, de-risking is a big problem with biotechs in general, because especially in the US, investors are, are very lucky because of all the non-dilutive funding. However, it is still hard to get that non-dilutive funding to be able to get to a milestone that is really interesting for the investors. 
So that's in general for companies, early pitch companies to get that data to attract investors. Yeah, um, I think that this is, yeah, this, this will definitely make the whole market more inefficient though. I have never thought about it because when you think about the investors, like the perspective of the investor, it's more like a market perspective. So, and the perspective of the grants is not exactly a market perspective. It's a different type of decision-making process. So what basically has happened is like if the whole investor ecosystem is dependent upon the grants on the first layer of the, let's say the seed would be like, or the first layer of, of it. It's, it will be the same as, as if the seed investors in web startups were like not other investors, but let's say the government or academia. Mm-hmm. We definitely would not have most of the startups that we have today if that was the case, because the incentives are different and the structures seem to be to be too disconnected to be an inefficient right right there there's no like like vcs or things like let's say like uh, accelerators like y combinator or things like that in like biotech that could help like bridge this gap this so we went we went through an accelerator already it's called the cls fast program and it, it, it was great it was a 12-week accelerator program but they didn't they didn't give give money they didn't take equity either they were just like helping, advising. It was actually great. It was really, really good program. The Y Combinator is another accelerator. They do give, the problem is, I think they changed how much they give. The last time I checked, I think it was $125,000, but they, they were taking about 8% equity, which is a lot of, for a biotech company, it's a lot of equity and it's not a lot of money. With $120,000, you, you, you can not, not do a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There is there is it a little bit, Right now, I think, but still, it's just not enough money for. And the delusion is important to to note for the sake of comparison to to more tech startup. In general, about tech startups, founders tend to get more deluded than tech uh, other tech startup founders. So this delusion is not for a, for like a SaaS company get, getting this seven percent delusion at the beginning would not make that big impact for the founders uh, payoff in the end, but for biotech company will because you have like more rounds and more diluted rounds so it's hurts more this earlier dilution would would hurt more definitely yeah yeah and and also another very important point is the valuation of the company right i mean if if you if you're getting um if you're giving up eight percent of your company for one hundred twenty five thousand dollars, usually you know I, I don't know much about tech startup but their valuation is much lower than a therapeutics company a therapeutics company, you want your valuation to be already pretty high because, first of all, your 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 ask, your fundraising ask is, is going to be pretty high, and you know your first investors are probably already going to take twenty five percent if you're fundraising five million dollars, let's say. So you want your valuation to be pretty high. If you're giving out eight percent for only one hundred and twenty five thousand, means that your valuation is really low. And then you, as a biotech startup, this puts you in a very in a very difficult spot for later rounds. For a tech startup, I think it's a little bit different because the valuations aren't that high. So it, it makes things harder because in your fundraising process, you have to think about all of these little things. You have to make sure your calculations are correct because, um, yeah, it can put you in a difficult spot for later rounds. So. And, and for this next round, you guys are, are raising, what's the, the idea for this round? Where would it get you guys to? Like, what's the, 
where where could you go with this this round? Yeah, so so the five million dollars that we're raising right now, it's for three year runway, and we have different milestones to hit. But the first one, well, basically, it'll lead us to having uh, assessment of the efficacy and safety in mouse models, which is huge because it means that if our approach is efficacious and safe for mouse models, then we can really go to pre-IND enabling studies. And that IND enabling studies is a pivotal point to reach for investors. So this is where we're trying to get to. And when you think about like the cost structure of doing a, a startup like that, like what, where would be like the big lines on your p Like what's the, like the biggest cost that you would have in doing that? So do you mean the bigger cost for this first round or in the life of, of a, a biotech up into commercialization? Oh, this first, this first step that you guys are going to. I would say right now it would really be, okay, so we need a, a, a lead scientist that really has a, a good, a high expertise in exosomes and gene therapy. So, and these expertise are not easy to find because exosomes are still, you know, it's still kind of new. Gene therapy, it's getting, it's expanding, expanding, but still. So having to find a scientist that has these expertise or maybe getting two lead scientists with these two different expertise, it's a lot of money. Also, we are in, located in California. So the salaries of these people, we, we cannot just work with lab technicians. We really need someone that is highly expert. So this is good. The, the, the salary of our lead scientists are going to be pretty high. Consumable. The consumable for both exosome and gene therapy is also pretty high. I would say those two are the highest because the work from the vendor doesn't equate to those two. So yes, I would say lead, the, the yeah. salary for lead scientists and consumable. It would high. be like the biggest, the biggest things to yeah to think about. Yeah, I think this is the problem of dealing with like atoms and not bytes. Mm-hmm. Bytes are so cheap. Atoms are not that cheap. that cheap. You need to transport them. You need to, they are always more expensive than just doing, it's always more expensive than just typing in a computer mm-hmm. to do all these things. Regarding like the market size, how do you guys measure the, the market size of like the first possible treatment for your platform? So we're targeting, we're focusing first on the advanced care mutated lung, colorectal and pancreatic. And there are several reasons why. First of all, well, KRS is well known. It's a high emit need today. It's very aggressive. So, and, and it, it has a high rate in all of these indications. So I, I believe, you know, 30% of all lung cancer, and it, there's a lot of people with, with lung cancer. So 30% of all lung cancer have KRS, are KRS mutated. 45% of all colorectal cancers are KRS mutated. And pancreatic, I mean, it's like 95% who have the KRS mutation. So I think all in all, if we only consider the advanced cases, the US and Europe, it was about 700,000 new cases per year. So it's a a lot of, it's a, it's a high unmet medical need in in a large population. Yeah. Yeah. So changing the subject a little bit, you have a not orthodox, I would say, background to be, to be in biotech. Could you tell me a little bit more about how you transition from your previous industry to the biotech industry? Yes. So both my parents are doctors and growing up, 
I did not want to be a doctor. I did not want to be in that field. You know, I could see my dad coming back from work and and really being impacted by the the life of his patients. So I really steered away from it and I went into business. From business, I went into, uh, I got my MBA in finance and entrepreneurship. And then, you know, as I was getting my MBA, I had actually just moved to California from France. And uh, uh, moving to California from France, I was so close to the movie industry and the Disney and Warner Brothers and, and all of these amazing companies, right? So my goal was really to, to be in that entertainment in, uh, industry, So, which is exactly what I did. I went in operations in these different companies. I think I started with Disney and then Warner Brothers and then Snapchat, the, the social media company. But after a couple of years, I really... These companies are even Snapchat. By the time that I joined, it was already a big company. It wasn't considered a startup anymore. And although I had I had nice responsibilities, any step that I wanted to take, any work I wanted to 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 undertake was I felt like a little ant. You know, the 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 work that I was working on, I wasn't really passionate about. In Disney, I was working in animation. Same for Warner Brothers. Snapchat, I was working in the in the the news department, so that was a little bit more interesting. But I wasn't passionate about it. And I really wanted to have my own business. Uh, I had some ideas here and there, but I I wasn't too sure. I was debating. And then my father came to me and he told me, look, I've been working on this approach for for a decade. And uh, I really think that this could work out. I I really want to develop it, but I don't know business-wise how to go about it. You have the, the education, you have the diploma. You have the experience, and although it's in a different industry, can you help me? And of course, I mean, I, I left everything and just jumped with both my feet <laughs> in with my dad. And uh, uh, there, it, there was a learning curve for sure. He gave me classes. He gave me biology classes. He gave me specifically cancer-focused classes. And I'm absolutely not a scientist, but I understand his concept from front and back, side to side, I've, I I know it by heart. It makes so much sense to me. I love explaining it to other people, answering the questions about it. And the, the industry itself, the oncology industry is extremely interesting. So yeah, I've learned a lot and, and you know, I've made some mistakes along the way, but if you don't make mistakes then that's a problem, if you surpass your mistakes and that's, that's even better. And I'm still learning today, obviously some investors for sure, you know, when they see the team and they see my background, it doesn't make sense to them. And I know that it's it's a problem. My background is a problem for investors. The fact that we're a father-daughter team is a problem for investors. But, you know, we, we need to find that one investor that believes in us, that understands our, our, our concepts. We have a first investor that is like this. Unfortunately, they can only bring so much money. But we're pushing through, we're continuing, and we're meeting new people and seeing what works with whom. Yeah, and I think that having someone with more like a business background, mm-hmm. it's helpful in a in a biotech startup as as things progressed. This is not because most really technical or let's say more scientific people would definitely throw up on doing the business things. They would it's not that they are not smart enough to do it or they are not even like sociable enough to do it. This, this, they have this, let's say this stereotypic thing about the guy in the lab. Not like that. It's that they, it bored them to how to do that. So they don't want to, to do the, the business part anyway for, for, for make it, for make the, 
the actual business of the solution to work. So having like a, a business background would be helpful in a way to drive this, like you said, like the fundraising process in, in itself, it's, which is really hard. It's basically sales more than anything else to be able to translate to the investor what this opportunity means. In the end, you are selling shares in a way of, of the other. So it's, it's a sales job and most technical Founders or scientists would really suffer if they need to do that because they would prefer to be in the lab doing other things than, than making PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, you need a complementary team. My father would, would not, I mean, I love him, of course. But when I see him, you know, when he wants to modify our pitch deck and modify slides, he, he you know... He, he doesn't think about using the same font. Everything is so drafty with him. I have to like go back and make sure that, you know, everything uh, correlates. And, and that's just a, a, a very simple example. But we're, we're fully complementary and, and having him as a scientist, you don't need another a person that has a scientific background in, on, on the team right now. What you need is someone that has a business background, that has, you know, business uh, experience, and also specifically who is resilient and has a lot of energy. And maybe people will see me as a, as a, a, a too much of a young woman, but at least, Hey, I bring all of the energy, all of the, the resiliency. I will push through. And the, the father daughter team also is good because, you know, it's my father's life's work. And I have all the pressure to make, to make this work because he's been working on this for now 12 years. So not only are we complementary, in both our expertise, in our comportment, in our behavior, but also, you know, there, there is this bond between father-daughter and I really need to make this work. And trust me, if I, so some, some investors are scared because they're saying, yeah, you know, like your father, he's going to be overprotective, blah, blah. No, not at all. You, you, you don't, you don't know my relationship with my father. If I, if I make a mistake, he will not be overprotective. He will let me know that I have made this mistake and I will hear about it. I will hear about it. So it's um, it's very interesting, but I, I could not have asked for a better teammate. And the whole team, it's in California right now, or you have part of it in France, part of it in, in California? How you guys are splitting it right now? You are fully remote, but how you guys are working on that? So we are in California. One of our advisors, this is on the advisory board, is in France. And we have a, an incubator uh, in Pasadena, California. Where, you know, when we do re um, receive the funding, then we will be able to hire the lead scientists. So right now we are remote, but we have a, a space at the incubator that is right next to where we're located at. And we just need the funding to, you know, to hire our, our lead scientists and, and continue the work. The work had started in France, but we've moved to California. Oh, I see. And before we, we wrapped up, what advice would you give for someone starting a deep tech startup right now after all these hoops that went to to raise money to start a company what advice would you give it's a very dense question a very dense question i would say that you really need to be sure to be passionate about what you're doing and have a goal in mind you need to have a goal in mind you need to know where you're going because it is a long process it's difficult what i like to say is if you need to pitch to 100 investors to get a yes, what would you do? You're going to pitch to 100 investors. You're going to want to pitch and pitch and pitch again and be rejected, et cetera, et cetera. So this will happen. 
you will be rejected and you need to take the rejection fine and you need to push through. So have a goal, be passionate, and most importantly, be resilient and have thick skin. Okay. And my last and favorite question, tell me a book that you would recommend right now. Oh my gosh. Wait, wait, wait. It was the book, Psycho something. Psycho. I'm sorry. Just give me one second. Just give me one okay. second. No, I know I have it. It's a great book. It'll really make you realize that the potential that you can create for you by how you think, how you operate. It's a very easy book to read. It can seem like it's it's long, but it's actually, you will just devour it. I just need to find it. I have it. It's Psycho something. Psycho-Cybernetics. So the book is called Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. And it changed the way that I've been thinking. It changed the way that I operate. And it really gives you confidence into what you can do. So yeah, I would highly recommend it. This is really interesting. It seems to be like a book from the 60s. I don't even, I can't remember. I can't remember because I have read it a long time ago. Yeah, and they have like a new edition of it that they they oh, yeah, kind of watch, but published. yeah, it's the, the original publishing six. Oh, it's interesting. I put it in my, my list. I've never heard about it actually. <laughs> it's it's very good. I've, I I bought it to some friends, and it's a uh, it's really it's really really interesting. Really interesting. I would highly recommend it to anybody who wants to start a business or is on uh, on some quests of whatever their quest is. It's uh, it's excellent. Okay, this is a great talk and it's exciting what you guys are doing. I hope that everything goes well. Probably I want to, to ping you in one year, maybe to talk about how things are, are, are progressing. And my last thing is, is if you were, were able to send a message to everybody on planet Earth right now, what would you send? Just one message. One message. I had this note that I wanted to share. Basically, very simply put, you can get in where you fit in or you can make room. And this is what I've been going through a lot, being a you know young woman, also immigrants in the US. Either you take the little space that you know is maybe given to you or you make your own room. And I think that that sentence says a lot so yeah okay cool cool really inspiring message like it <laughs> thank you so much Arian. hope that things go well for fundraising i hope to keep in touch and and see those exosomes flying around and killing cancers thank you thank you so much thanks for listening to the deep tech show if you enjoyed today's episode Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.